Hey, welcome everybody to Long Tones. Uh, I am Josh Landris from Jane Landris Brass in New York City. I'm here today with my co-host Steve Johnson from Virtuosity in Boston. Uh, we have a very special guest with us today, uh, John Lampley, trumpet player, multi-instrumentalist, performer, creator, all-around amazing person, um, is our guest today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into Long Tones. Steve, you want to tell uh, everybody what's uh, going on today and what's in store? Yeah, what do you say? What do you say we just dive right in here? Hey, let's go for it, John. Uh, you know, uh, coming from from what I understand, your first year as a psychology major at the Ohio State University. Um, how did that all start out, and what made you switch over to music full time? And and uh, you know, just kind of take us through that. What what prompted that, and how how'd you get over to New York City from there? Well, first of all, thank you both for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you guys. It's really cool. Um, I, I guess my musical journey started way before college, right? Um, so I came up in a family that was essentially like the backbone of my family was church. Um, I grew up Pentecostal apostolic. And so I grew up in the type of church where there were so many incredible musicians, so many incredible singers. And so like from, you know, being a little child, my whole thing was, you know, being immersed in this situation every Sunday, but my family specifically had a lot of musicians. Um, I had cousins who were singers, bass players, uh, piano players, drummers. Um, my mom was an incredible singer. Uh, you know, she, she was a teacher by profession, but she had a beautiful voice. And so she was just singing hymns and tunes all over. So before I was even, you know, cognizant, there was just this style of music constantly in my brain. Um, fast forward a little bit. Um, I started on piano. I think my mom had me taking piano lessons when I was like four or five years old, but, um, I very quickly started to play by ear. So, you know, I'd go to the professor's house or the teacher's house. My, uh, first piano teacher's name was Mrs. Song, which is kind of amazing name for a piano teacher, but you know, she would teach me the theory and the notes and all this stuff. And then I'd go home and put on like you know, Ben Folds or like, you know, these other gospel tunes I was hearing, just try to plink them out on the piano by ear. Soon after that, you know, got into the uh, elementary school band program and you get to pick your instrument. And I chose the trumpet. That was the one that kind of spoke to me. I couldn't get a note out of any woodwind. Um, and I really just dug the way that the trumpet felt. My fingers dug the sound of it. And very shortly after that, I mean, I barely knew how to play a scale. And my mom was like, all right, you got to take your trumpet and start playing at church now. You know, no explanation, no, like, what are the songs? It was like, okay. So I, I'll never forget the first day. I kind of just, like, walked over to the corner where the musicians were, and nobody really said anything. I just picked up my trumpet, and it was like, all right, let's go. And so I did that essentially from seventh grade all the way through high school, you know, just essentially learning learning by ear, playing you know i i literally learned scales by just trying to like hear what was happening with the song and be like oh that doesn't work that doesn't work oh that kind of works um i think it was really interesting on my technique too because essentially i you know i didn't have a formal trumpet lesson until college so you know i you learn how to play the instrument in fifth grade band and then you're kind of just in the group of it and for me once i knew the basics i was just kind of using my ears to figure out what kind of sounded good, what sounded in tune. 
But then playing at church, it was like, oh, let me learn these songs and let me hear what Marvin Brown's playing on guitar, like the way that, you know, James Thomas sings this thing and try to do that because I like the way that it sounds. And so by the time I had gotten to college, um, I, you know, played at a bunch of high school bands, jazz band, played at church, but I came from a family where it was like, you know, it's cool, you're great at music, but we want you to have a job that pays the bills. So in my mind, music wasn't really an option career-wise. So when I got to Ohio State, I determined that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So I was studying psychology and pre-medicine my freshman year. But the other caveat to all of this is maybe in about seventh grade, I became really focused and obsessed with the idea of playing the sousaphone as well. So for trumpet players, it's kind of the opposite situation. Um, I was obsessed with college football, specifically Ohio State football. My dad started taking me to games when I was like five years old. And if you know anything about Ohio State football, every week you got 110,000 fans screaming. Um, it's a culture. It's one of the biggest sports followings around the world. It's a big. Those are those are. It's a big stadium there. Big stadium there. But yeah, the the marching band at Ohio State is world famous. Um, it's it's like military precision. It's an all brass band, and specifically, um, there's a tradition that the band does called Script Ohio, where they spell out Ohio on the field. But it's not just like they go to the formation. Essentially, it looks like somebody is writing in cursive, Ohio across the screen. It's very cool. And at the end of the formation, a senior sousaphone player struts to the top of the eye in what is called the dotting of the eye. And like, as soon as I realized I wasn't going to get to play football at Ohio State, I was like, I want to do that. I have to do that. <laughs> cool. And so my freshman year, I tried out for the marching band. I was in the marching band. So I wasn't really playing a lot of trumpet my freshman year. I was playing mostly sousaphone in the marching band. And I mean, it was like hours a day, right? So fast forward. Uh sophomore year I switched to studying trumpet so I was taking lessons and I was lucky enough to connect with a teacher who was teaching at Ohio State literally for two years before he left and the two years that he taught there happened to be the time that I switched uh majors and his name is Kenyatta Beasley I know Josh yeah. knows him Kenyatta man his his Kenyatta is amazing literally like maybe the single most influential person on my musical journey based on what he taught me, but also just the, the pivotal moment in which he entered my story. So I studied with him for wow. two years, incredible trumpet player from New Orleans who had been living in New York and touring with Lauren Hill. And he showed me so much. I'm sure we'll get into it later. But um, while I was studying with him, I was playing the sousaphone. Kind of did that all through school. Um, and eventually after college, moved to New York with two of my best friends, Dan and Chris. Dan plays saxophone. Chris, Dan White plays saxophone. Chris Ott plays trombone. We have a band called Hunter Tones. And that was kind of how I got to New York. And that's, I guess, a, a the briefest summation I can give of kind of the, the earlier part of my journey. Because I think we're going to get in, into, you know, the current part a little later. Wow. That is, that's incredible. Um mm. Yeah. So you you were you were a trumpet major then at Ohio State? Yes. When I switched, I, I switched over to jazz studies and I was a trumpet performance major. That was like the focal point once I switched. Yet still playing sousaphone in the marching band. Yeah, it was really interesting. And again, like Kenyatta being the 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 person and the musician and the the teacher that he is, that you know, there were a lot of classical brass players 
in the educational space that were kind of like, don't do that. You're going to like ruin your chops. And I very specifically remember Kenyatta being like, bro, if you can play both of those instruments, definitely do that. Like (laughs) definitely do that. And yeah, I just, it's the type of thing where like, because I started doing both around middle school, you know, it's like with anything else, like if you're learning how to do something in a way where nobody's telling you, you can't do it, you're going to figure out how to do it. And that was kind of what it was. So I remember getting later in life and all of these like trumpet players or tuba players being like, dude, like, how are you, how is that even possible? And to me, it's like, well, I don't really know any other way that it's not possible, you know? So it's not even something I can explain. I just think because I was approaching it in a way that wasn't being informed by somebody who was like, oh, that's going to like mess up your chops. I kind of just figured out how to do it. And that's kind of been, you know, my whole career in music up till this point. Did you did you take any Sousa or like tuba lessons when you were there or just all trumpet and then the Sousa was taken from what you know as a trumpet player and playing three valves? I literally that I've so when I when my I think it was like my sixth or seventh grade teacher put the tuba in my hand and gave me the book with like the fingering chart, which is the same as Trump. And she was like, look, I have faith that you will figure out how this mouthpiece works. And like, you got it. And then that was that. And I just kind of like plunked around for a month until I figured it out. I've never had a tuba or sousaphone lesson like ever wow. in my life. I just, I don't know how to explain. I, I just like, once I figured out how to get sound on the instrument, I was, you know, fi- you, like using my ears in the same way I was using my ears to play the trumpet. And then I got older and started to kind of play sousaphone like when I started playing in the marching band you're just playing so much sousaphone and I think I've always had an awareness of like what a good sound is or if not good like what I've wanted to sound like so so I was trying I could hear that and I just tried to make that happen as I was practicing and then a lot of it too was like I think when I'm when I practice tuba I wouldn't necessarily be practicing like tuba stuff I'd be trying to play like bass lines from like bass players and so, like, not just the type of lines you're playing, but, like, the way that a bass player like Pino Palladino over D'Angelo's stuff or, like, James Jamerson, the Motown stuff, or, like, you know, the way that you articulate and play is going to be totally different if you're trying to play like that rather than if you're trying to, like, emulate brass band stuff. So I think that also yeah, kind totally. of has, you know, a, that paired with the approach of a trumpet player has kind of informed how I play the sousaphone, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. That's really incredible um and then so your your initial plan to to come to new york was with your friends and do hunter tones that was like you're all like hey let's let's move to new york i think we can do this uh let's move to new york yeah i mean that was kind of the it, it was almost as simple as that we all met at the ohio state university um basically we were like staggered in years so like there was chris and then dan and then me and we met my sophomore year and immediately were drawn to each other. Like I said, I mean, we all realized that there was like a similar ambition, both on our instruments, but also in terms of like creativity. We didn't just want to like play other people's music. We wanted to kind of create something that was ours. So we were immediately drawn to each other because of that. Also, we just happened to make up like the ideal horn section, right? Trumpet, trombone, tenor, saxophone. So in in that way, it very much worked out. We actually played 
together in college in uh, what was called the Art Blakey Ensemble, where like for I think two or three years, we all were in this band and we just literally played the music of Art Blakey. And that was kind of the beginning, like 1.0 era of Hunter Tones. It was like playing that music, digging into listening to that music. And then as we started to kind of conceptualize, it was like this, it'd be really cool to kind of have a modern version of this band where you're doing original music, but you're also taking, you know, uh, songs from pop culture, whether they be, you know, for in our case, like Disney songs or songs from movies or pop songs and kind of flipping them on their head in a way that is interesting and accessible. So that's kind of what Hundred Tones be became. When I was done at Ohio State, I graduated. I remember we were sitting in a room in the apartment that we were living in, in New York or in Columbus. And Dan was like, all right, um, what do we want to do? And and as it as amazing as the Columbus music scene is and was for us, we recognized that there was going to be a ceiling on what we wanted to accomplish with our careers as a band and individually, unless we kind of took a next step and, and went somewhere. And I think the options were the classic, you know, music towns. It's like, all right, well, Nashville's not too far from Columbus. LA is pretty far, but, you know, Dan and Chris had done some work in the college Disney band, so they had some people out there. But New York was, I think, for all of us, the place that was calling the most for many reasons. Dan is actually originally from Buffalo, New York. So, you know, New York State was kind of home to him already. Um, Kenyatta, my biggest influence at that time, lived in New York. Um, I think we were in college right at the beginning of the rise of Snarky Puppy. And so the the kind of fabled tale of that band was that they moved from Texas to New York and kind of yeah. got into this scene, like the Rockwood thing. So like we were watching that all happen from afar on like YouTube and like listening to their music. And so there was definitely that seed in our brain of like, man, if we could just get to that place, not saying we're trying to do exactly what they're doing, but it seems like that would make a lot of sense to try to do. So all of those things kind of made New York the clear cut choice. And so we, you know, threw our stuff in the U-Haul van and moved into a way too small apartment in Flatbush for three dudes that are over six feet tall. Perfect. And that was, <laughs> that was the beginning of that. So, so John, I mean, we, we, we talked about this a little bit with Brian uh, Newman last month. So you, you land in New York. What's, what's next? What do you, you know, what's, what's the next step? We got here and me, Dan and Chris just were out every night at various sessions, not just like the jazz sessions, but like we went to a lot of sessions that were like singers. Like I remember there was this jam at a spot called Toshi's, which was like the lounge of a hotel. But it was like, there was a house band, but the people that would come like sit in were all singers. So it was like, you know, you'd go and, and it's not necessarily like, yo, how fast can you play giant steps? It would be like, yo, do you know the horn parts to this Stevie Wonder song or this Aretha Franklin song because this person's going to sing it. So we started kind of showing up to places as a horn section. And because we already had chemistry, people were like, oh, dang, like those cats are like different. They got a thing. And we ended up becoming the house horn section for this type of sec uh, section or session at a place called the Rivington, Rivington Hotel. We did that for a while within a couple of months of moving here. Me personally, it was wild. We moved to New York and I was like fully like practicing trumpet all the time. And I ended up getting a, an email from a band leader of a band called Red Barat, which I don't know if 
I'm sure some people who are checking this out know Red Barat, led by Sonny Jane, incredible. Sonny. You know yeah. Sonny. Dull player. And, and, and Sonny, Sonny Sing on trumpet. Good. Sonny good, Sing, good friend I mean, of mine. Sonny Sing, Sonny, that whole band is incredible. Yeah. I had never heard of them. And I get an email. It's like, hey, um, Sonny here with the band Red Barat. Our sousaphone player is um, taking some time. John Altieri, one of the dopest tuba players in the yeah. world. Shout out, John. He's like, hey, we're in need of a sousaphone player um, for some things coming up. Heard through a uh, friend of a friend, you know, you're a new sousaphone player in town. Would you be interested in coming to my rehearsal space and, you know, playing through some of our songs to see? And me, like, just getting to New York, I'm like, yes, 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 anything, yes. So I show up with my sousaphone. We jam through some Red Barat songs. And I'm like, this is awesome. He's like, yeah, man, this is cool. Would you like to do some dates? And so, man, the first year, literally, like, within maybe two months of moving to New York, the first year I was predominantly touring on sousaphone with Red Barat. And it was incredible yeah. because it was, like, playing, meeting all of those musicians, first of all, like, and playing with that band. But, like, I went everywhere. Like, I I think within two months we were, like, in Austria and Poland. And I'd never been overseas before. You know, I'd never done anything like wow. that. So as a kid from Ohio, I was, like, stoked to be playing sousaphone in this band that was, like, we were playing traditional Indian songs, but like with a go-go hip hop twist and everybody was jumping around and it was just like opened my mind up to a completely different scene and style. And it's like my my tuba chops became ridiculous because we're literally playing 90 minute sets where I'm playing bass the entire time. And so it's like, it was really, really fun to do that. And then like when I wasn't on tour with them, I would be, you know, with Dan and Chris, like going out to these sessions, like trying to write hundred tone songs. And man, I remember like we were trying to book hundred tones gigs the first year we were here. And I mean, I think our first show was at like the Bowery electric in the small room. And there was like two people there, you know what I mean? Just like doing that whole thing, but it just for the sake of playing and like being out in the scene. So that was kind of the beginning of literal beginning of my New York journey. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I remember thinking that I was like so ready to play trumpet and the first year was like 80% sousaphone. It's bizarre. Yeah, when I when I first met you, uh, I thought you were a sousaphone player. And you're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a trumpet player. I just play sousaphone. <laughs> right. I never know how to frame it. So where does, um, I guess maybe jumping out a little bit, where where does the, the Late Show Band come into this? I mean, how, how long before that comes along? And, and how did that kind of materialize for you? Man, so it's kind of... All of this is kind of a part of the same story, right? I So I was touring with Red Barat. Soon into that situation, um, I met uh, a man. I mean, kid, I don't know. We were all kids. It felt like we were all kids at the time. But um, Sammy Miller, who was an incredible drummer and band leader, um, we met. I think he subbed on a small group gig that me, Dan, and Chris were doing. And we hit it off immediately. Like, I was playing sousaphone. He was playing drums. Afterwards, we were talking. He was like, hey, man, I really dig your energy and the way that you play. Like, I have this band, and I have an idea for it, and we're playing some shows at Dizzy's. Would you be down? Not again, I'm in this, the first two years of my life in New York, I was just like, yes, anything. Whatever it is, I'm totally down. Um, So I start playing with this band, Sammy Miller and the Congregation. It's this amazing blend of jazz and folk and like kind of a little bit of gospel 
And we, we would do like the late night set at Dizzy's. So like Dizzy's, the jazz club associated with uh, Lincoln Center. Um, there's always like the 7 and the 9.30, the main sets. But then they would have a band play like Monday to Thursday from like 12.30 to 2 a.m. So I'm like, you know, holding down the sousaphone chair, playing trumpet. So like going back, this is one of like one of the first times outside of Hunter Tones where I'm starting to do a little more back and forth. And so I, I, as I was playing with this band, I started to be introduced to a lot of kind of the young musicians around 2014, 2015 that were coming out of Juilliard and starting to make some noise. So because I didn't know I, I didn't know any of these musicians personally. So Sammy, Alfonso Horn, amazing trumpet player, David Lennard, um, Ben Flox, who's in California now, all these incredible musicians I was coming into the fold. But then, like, I remember seeing Joe Saylor, the drummer who was in the Late Show band, hanging at Dizzy's a lot. Um, Jamison Ross, I remember being there. Just kind of this scene of musicians that are associated with or went to Juilliard or that Lincoln Center scene. I started to kind of meet them. And one night that we were playing at Dizzy's, Joe Saylor, who had been John Batiste's drummer for a very long time, was there. And I, I've learned this story later. Apparently, he texted John and he was like, man, there's this cat who's playing trumpet and sousaphone, you should check him out. And I want to say a week later, I had an email from uh, John Batiste's people that were like, hey, um, and this was, it had just been announced that he was getting ready to take over uh, the band leader spot at the new, <laughs> the brand new late show with Stephen Colbert, which is crazy because it's literally been eight years now. But I remember when all this was happening, but I get this email. It's like, hey, John's looking to put together a band for some shows he has coming up at the Newport Jazz Festival and a couple of things in New York. Are you interested? Again, I was like, yes. And so <laughs> at this time, I had been touring with the band OAR, um, which is like some of my best friends, incredible rock band, started in Maryland, went to Ohio State, have had an incredible career. Um, they kind of absorbed me into the fold while I was in college. So when I moved to New York, I'd been playing with them for about two years. And I told John's people, I was like, hey, I have this summer tour with this band that I've touring with, but I'm definitely interested to do some of these shows. Did the shows with John. We played the Newport Jazz Festival. He headlined. It was incredible. Immediately kind of just vibed with uh, John's energy, his positive spirit, but also just the spontaneity with which he kind of performs. And I think we kind of, without saying a lot of words, there was a lot of, you know, uh, connection that we had on stage. So played the Newport Jazz Festival with him, immediately jumped to the OAR tour. And about three weeks from the end of that OAR tour, I get an email from the Late Show, the house band producer of the Late Show. is like, hey, um, John is wondering if you would be interested in being in the fold for the beginning of this tenure at the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And I'm like, I, I'm literally like, man, I don't even know how all of this is happening. I'd only been in New York for like, two years i mean it, it was insane I, it was really wow. really ridiculous and and i feel really really fortunate and i think that it would you know the type of music that john play well was playing at the time it was very much rooted in like you know jazz i mean i, th I think john is one of the greatest living musicians in the world specifically like when you see him sit down at a piano nobody can do what he can do but um, but also as an entertainer, a big part of that show was like him playing the melodica in the band, like sousaphone, melodica, going out into the thing. And so this idea that I was playing this tuba and the trumpet 
I think was it it fit well with what that band was doing. And so I was like, yes, of course, I would love to be a part of the fold. This tour ends here and I am back on this day and I'm down to come into the late show and do whatever you need me to do. So that was, I mean, I think 2015 was, was wow. fall of 2015 was when that started. And I've been fortunate enough to like continue to be in the fold of the late show. I was at the late show kind of in and out from that point up until 2020. And I've been full time with the band since 2020. And now Louis Cato is the band leader. John has obviously gone on and won album of the year a couple of years ago and put out incredible music and is touring all over the world and doing all of these amazing things. And it, it's been so inspiring to watch him. But Louis Cato, incredible guitar player, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist has stepped into the band leader fold over at the late show and the it's been one of the great joys of my life to play with that band and to to be writing music and performing uh so regularly you know with somebody as amazing as steven kind of at the helm of all of that so that's kind of how that came to be and i'm super grateful that all of that kind of happened the way that it that it did so so with all this stuff going on in your musical life in a busy you have your your projects that you're working on um i assume you have some hobbies and passions outside of music what are some things you were into john man like i said at the beginning i i think my first love was college football i like you know i the sports in general like we'll say it was like i love the ohio state buckeyes but in general i love posting up on a saturday and watching college football Huge fan of it. I played basketball uh, up until high school, and I actually recently have uh, started to play again in a pickup league with a group of really amazing competitive comedians who all play basketball. So basketball is is a big one for me. One that is maybe a little more recent, um, within the last probably three years, I've gotten really into coffee. You know, when you when you travel a lot, coffee is a thing, finding coffee shops. But being at home, kind of taking the next step where it's like I bought the nice grinder and like the scale and, you know, like messing with the different types of beans and all that stuff. It's like I feel like coffee has become something that I would actually say as a hobby now and not just like, oh, I drink coffee. It's like, no, well, I'm going to try these different beans today and look at you know, test out what grind works. All I, I love all of that stuff. That that's been a fun one. Um, yeah, though I mean, those are big ones outside of music that I feel like I really enjoy. You know, like everybody loves to read a book, stuff like that. But so, John, yeah. when you're on the road and you're looking for a spot for coffee, what do you look for? What do you What do you need oh, to man. see to to get that good good cup going? Oh, I'll, <laughs> to get that good cup going. I like that. I'll give you two answers. One is kind of like the the surface level answer. And I think that some people in my inner circle I've had this conversation with. There is like a there's like a font when you walk into an establishment, there's like a font on the menu board and you can just tell that it's going to be good. It's like that it's like those thin letters and it's real like you y'all you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like Oh yeah, you know when you see it. If it's like thick and cartoonish or like the font is like, you know, fun, it's like probably a cool hang. Maybe they have Connect Four over in the corner, but the coffee's probably going to be pretty mid. <laughs> but when you have that like real like minimal, like sometimes it's like a board and the things are like, like magneted on there and they're just real simple or like, 
that's when you know that the coffee is about to be. Sometimes there's not even like a menu. It's just like a real clean space. And it's like, I think that's how you know that a coffee shop. That That's kind of like my, my real service level. I'll, if I get off the bus or off the van and I'm looking around, it's like, that's what I will do. The other one, though, is like, you know, fortunate to have a lot of friends and colleagues in this industry that have been touring for a long time. So I'll just, you know, text somebody that has been on tour recently, like, yo, I'm in Nashville. Yo, I'm in Sacramento. Yo, I'm in Idaho. Like, what's the spot? And people like there's always somebody that knows they're like, dude, go here. Totally worth it. So those are the two things, right? Like the network of musicians and the font. What's your what's your go to tester drink? Like for me, it's like I, I like I'm in the coffee too, and when I travel and try new coffee shops, I do a macchiato just to see what it's all about because I think I can you know see what the 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 quality of the bean is and the barista and and what they're making. What's your what's your tester drink? Cortado, man. It's slightly okay. slightly more, but that it's same deal where it's like that's what I get, and it's it's tough too because like even with the espresso drink. It's like if that isn't happening, you don't even need to mess with the coffee, the drip or the pour over. Yeah. You know it's like yep. but if yep. you yeah, so Cortado is the tester drink for me. That's a great man. You should just bake that question into <laughs> to everybody. It's every every long tones. What's your coffee yeah. tester drink? You know every trumpet player that's out here is a coffee person. It's a it's a very important question. Now, I mean if they say something like, Well, what's a Cortado? How do I make that? Is that just a hightail it out of there? Yeah, thanks for playing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's a Cortado? It's like, man, have a great day. <laughs> so what's your what's your given day like then? If you're if you're in town, I know you're doing, you know, projects. I know you have some shows we'll we'll talk about coming up soon, um, with your projects and stuff, but what's your what's your day look like? Like Man, routine has become so important for me, not just to be productive but to to feel grounded as a human being to feel like i'm like existing in the world that in a way that is like driving towards the professional things that i want to accomplish but also just feeling like a centered human being in the world so you know i'm up i try to be up relatively early uh seven ish you know i make coffee like religiously this you know grind the beans do pour over do the process i'll sit chill you know listen to some music i have a record player at home typically like listen to a record drink the coffee and then um typically i will come so i i i I, this is a studio space that i rent and i'll come here to um to kind of do all of the work things that i consider work to be done that is not like playing a show so like you know I'll get to this space. At, typically on the way here, I'll I'll do a second coffee. I'll do a cortado at a coffee shop nearby. I'll get here, answer some, you know, answer some emails, send some emails, like if if there's a Google document that needs to be attended to, that type of thing. Um I will um practice, kind of warm-up style practice. What are you what are you warming up on? Trumpet or sousaphone or both? So fun fact, I really like sousaphone. I'm really not like there's not a lot of daily maintenance that I do on that instrument unless I know that I have like, all right, hundred tones tours coming up or like there's a season where I'm gonna have to really hold it down. Um, I'm talking trumpet here. I will come in like the beginning of my trumpet warm up is usually like a mouthpiece buzz. 
And then I really like to do like long tones, but I'll start the long tone with like, I'll play a half step and then I'll bend a half step and then I'll bend back up and just like hold that tone. So it's kind of like a long tone, but with a very easy, basic lip bend flexibility, like, you know, G down to G. And then I feel like I'll <clears throat> go into like, I like chromatic scales just to kind of get the fingers going, but also kind of like to get the range happening. Um, love Charlier is kind of like a, like if not every day, every other day, just something to make me feel like I'm you like a baseline. It's like, all right, your articulation's happening or like it's not happening. Like th those are three things that I feel like I deal with relatively regularly from a warm up perspective. But then it's like, you know, on any given day, it's like, and especially now, a part of my routine is trying to create more. So not necessarily just being like, all right, let me knock out this remote recording project or let me, it's like, let me like write. And sometimes it's like, you know, I pull out my keyboard and kind of cycle through an idea and try to put some lyrics to it. Sometimes it's just like, let me, let me pull up a beat on splice. Or let me like make a beat with some patches that I have and like, just kind of dial in some horn stuff different versions of kind of like pushing myself to create you know not not rooted in like necessarily any form of like uh oh i'm writing something for this band or i'm writing something for this project let me just kind of like get the juices flowing and then you know maybe that leads to like all right this this is something that i feel like could exist in the hundred tone space let me be intentional about writing something for that or i'll think about like you know yeah, this year specifically, I'm I'm working on a lot of my own music kind of to put out next year, which is really exciting. But like, you know, maybe it's like creating in the lane of that. So kind of getting to this space, warming up, getting a focus on uh, creation specifically recently. Um, and then, I mean, a lot, a lot transcription too. I think really like the, the best version of practice that I do ever, but like specifically in this point on the trumpet, I think it's listening to trumpet players or instrumentalists or vocalists that I really like and just trying to emulate what they're doing on the horn. I think it's it's ear it's it's great for the ears, it's great for the mind, it's great for the fingers. And I feel like it's the thing that like when I am when I am trying to learn melodies or solos consistently, like when I'm doing that sort of practice consistently, I find that the when I play or when I write, the ideas come so much more naturally or, or, or just it flows a lot better than when maybe I'm only focusing on like technique style practice outside of like playing, you know, when you're just constantly trying to really internalize ideas on the horn from like other soloists, it really, or, or songwriters or whatever, it really helps kind of like open the floodgate of inspiration you know, so transcription is a big piece of the the thing that I'll do. So then, afternoon, early afternoon, I head to the gym. I'm I kind of like that is the time in my day where it makes the most sense to get a workout in. Um, I I like weight weight training, kind of balance with cardio stuff. I mean, air anything that's gonna help you breathe is gonna help you be a brass player or a singer. So like, I do it for my body, but I'm sure it benefits you know the whole of playing. I mean, it definitely benefits. Um. And then I I head over to the show. We tape around five every day. So like by that point, you know, I'm over there going over whatever I need to go over to play the show. We do that, get home, make some dinner, order some dinner. 
Um, and that's kind of a day in the life. Obviously, it's different on the road. You know, you wake up in a city, you find the coffee, you get your workout in, you do sound check. That's a different routine because I've been with the show. Um, and particularly the fall winter is a little bit more chill on the touring side for me. I, it's been a lot more of that first routine that I described recently. And then you do your shows at night when you when you have shows. Exactly. Right. It's like, you know, right. You know, if there's something happening, it's like you get out of the taping, you change, shoot to the venue, play, try to get as much sleep as you can afterwards. Yeah. You know? John, does that does that change a little bit on days when you have vocal work that you need to be doing? Man, I that's a great question. I don't. So at the show, I'm predominantly playing trumpet. A little bit of tuba, but there's a lot. The band, there's a lot of like gang vocal stuff. Um, when I'm on tour with OAR, I have a decent lift vocally in terms of background vocals, or like I sing lead on some things. And with my own music, it's really starting. I mean, m like with my stuff, I kind of very much want to be the. I want the vocal aspect of it to be something that is forward. You know, as much as the the horn if not more you know in some cases i don't i like at this point in my journey with that i'm not necessarily like doing anything differently on days that i have to sing or not i think the the uh when i like when there's a when there's some, <clears throat> something coming up that i know i'm going to be singing a lot for what i find to be beneficial is really practicing like what it is to be playing and singing because particularly as a trumpet player it's like that type of phrasing or the type of like thing where it's like all right well i have to play this and then jump to this note here it's something that is like it takes a lot of work for that to feel natural so you know i, I recorded a live record a few weeks ago and leading into it i remember just coming into this space and kind of like just dummy running all of the stuff by myself and practicing what it is to kind of like go here and then sing just to kind of get those transitions because it is, it's a lot of air and it's a lot of air being spun in completely different ways. So I guess the difference would be when there's vocal stuff coming up, trying to practice those transitions, you know, just to internalize that feeling. I'm also just kind of like, I feel like I'm at the beginning of my like really dealing with vocals journey. So like figuring out what it looks like to develop a vocal warm up routine or a practice on that is a part of, I think, what the next couple of months are for me. So I'm excited to dive into that a little bit more specifically. Who are so you 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 kind of talked about it a little bit in your listening, but what are you what are you, you know, what are you listening to these days? Who who inspires you? What what music and musicians and what are you what are you listening to? Man, I am this is right it's such like a it's a question that is always a question and it's like there's a billion answers specifically right now um there is a band called Butcher Brown and I don't know if you're familiar or if anybody out there is familiar Butcher Brown has been my favorite band maybe for the past two or three years since I discovered them um incredible group based out of Richmond VA and it's this blend of soul and hip-hop and jazz they just released an album called solar music um it's it's like it's it's one of the most incredible bands that i've ever heard it's also just like a combination of all of the things that i loved the most growing up like kind of like 
churchy harmony at times, knocking drums, like D'Angelo style, neo soul energy. Um, Marcus Tenney, tennis shoe is what he goes by kind of is the at the center of the band and he plays trumpet and tenor saxophone like equally virtuosically but he also is the MC of the band like he raps and he writes all of the verses for many of the songs that they do and it and he does all three of those things at like the highest level like you know how somebody is like, oh, I play the trumpet, but I like rap a little bit or like I'm an MC and then I pick up the saxophone and I kind of do this. My man plays both horns and spits virtuosically. It's so, so it's incredible. Wow. That's I mean, I, wow. that is what I, I they're in the rotation of what I'm listening to all day, every day, all the time. Um, Two other um, just right now is that I'm thinking about are. Um, they, uh, there was a Roy Hargrove album that was recently re released called The Mahogany Suite, and it's absolutely incredible. Incredible. It, that's, in, that's an incredible record. I, Roy, Roy is like my North Star, not just as a musician, obviously trumpet player, but just his spirit, his soul, the way he operated within different contexts of the music industry, but like, or the, not the industry, but like just different contexts of music. Like everything he touched is like what I wanted to touch, how he played, who he played with, all these things. And this live recording that that is the album that they made, to me, it, it captures like everything about Roy, his sound, the way that he wrote that was like rooted deep in the tradition, like really slick harmonic stuff a la like, Wayne Shorter, but like very grooving stuff. But then just the way that he plays, like one of the, the last track, the second to last track on the album is just a blues. And he steps up to the mic and he scats before he like blows. He takes this vocal solo and it's like the most soulful thing. I heard it and I was just like yelling on the train, like loud. Um, the, So the Mahogany Suite by Roy Hargrove is a big one that I've been listening to. And then, man, this young, young, uh, multi-instrumentalist, his name is Julius Rodriguez. Um, I came to know him as a keyboard and piano player. He plays drums. If anybody out there wants to listen to something that feels good and is mind-blowing, check out Julius Rodriguez. Those are those are three artists that are kind of like in the rotation of what I'm really digging into right now. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and what, what equipment are you playing? I am playing a Josh Landris original. If you look at Josh's shirt, this is that is the this is the real deal, man. Man, once again, Kenyatta was like, man, like, what are you dealing with on a horn? And this was like years ago. I was like, oh, you know, I've got this Yamaha thing that you told me about. He was like, man, you got to check out my guy Josh. So I, think I just came into the shop one day and I was like, man, I heard you were making horns, and you were like, yeah, man, I'm like making trumpets if you're interested fill out this thing and i filled out the thing and you made this and it was like wow this is an incredible horn i think i've been playing on this for i mean pretty much as long as i've lived in new york so maybe like seven i mean i've been over here almost 10 years so probably eight years at least yeah i'd, I'd say eight or nine yeah and i'm just gonna say this straight up like i am the worst about gear like i don't care about anything don't ask me about a bore or a stay i'm just like if i pick it up and I can play it. I know what I want to sound like. And if I can get to that sound, 
on the thing, then that's that. And with this horn, I've just always been able to get to it. I really, really have loved it. I've dug it. Um, and then I've been playing on this um, GR66M mouthpiece for a long time. I feel like I, you know, I've kind of been a 3C, Bach 3C. So like anytime I've been like, ah, oh, mouthpiece isn't really happening. Let me try something out else. And people will ask me like, what are you looking for? And I always say like the equivalent of a Bach 3C in whatever the thing is. And I'll just try it. Similarly, this is a mouthpiece where it's like, and there's an, there's a plethora of amazing pieces out there. This was the one where it's like, all right, I can get to my sound, which is like soulful, kind of like squirrely at times, but like whatever that thing is, that's my thing. This is just what's allowed me to get to it the best. And John, is that an everyday piece is, or does it change based on your situation or? Man, I've always just been somebody who it's like, this is what I do. This is my piece and this is what I play in any situation. And it's like, I'm not, I feel like my career as a trumpet player, it's like, I, and I guess my approach to music in general is like, I've always wanted to be in settings where it's like, obviously I want to be able to like cover the range of whatever I need to cover, but like, I'm going to be like me. Like if you're looking for like a lead player for your big band and you want to play this, the like, you know, the Quincy Jones Sinatra bassy stuff where he's living up there, I'm probably not going to be able to live very high up there all the time, but I'm going to be able to like get you that G or like get to that G when I need to get it. Um, so in that respect, like I've never been somebody that's like, oh, this is this gig, I'm gonna do this one, or this is this, I, I've kind of just always been like, this is my setup that allows me to be me. And that's kind of what it is. That being said, I'm all for the technicians who know exactly what this one is for. Like, let me like twist this knob so I can get this airflow. Like I'm all, I'm blown away by the people who have that level of understanding of both the instruments that they're playing, but also like how their bodies like are reacting to those minute changes. That's just kind of like, that's never been my approach to the instrument, but also just like music in general. I, it's, you know, so that's my approach to the whole gear situation, if you will. And then what do you play for sousaphone? Playing old con, right? Con 20K. Basically, what I played in the marching band at Ohio State, I was like, that's what I need. I played on this for four years for like hours upon hours every single day. So let me just find that, you know, and I've kind of always enjoyed that. I, uh, I, there, I, with Hunter Tones recently, a lot of the way that we've been touring is like in and out. So I'm backlining. So it's kind of just like what you get is what you get. And what I found is that like the lighter, like the 16s, the the sousaphones are a little bit lighter. You you don't really sacrifice a lot of sound. So if I were to upgrade or look for another sousaphone, it it would really just be something that is lighter for convenience, to be honest. But but yeah, the the Con 20K, always a big fan, can't go wrong. So moving on, Steve, I don't know if you have any that have come through from on your end, but I've got a couple questions here that have come in. Oh, yeah, yeah for, right, for John. Yeah. Um, so the, the so the first one came from the newsletter from Mike at our newsletter. Uh, he says, uh, John, what's the hardest thing about playing on the Late Show aside from the schedule? Aside from the schedule, that's a great question. Um, the most difficult thing about playing on the Late Show is that we are asked to cover the entire spectrum of what could be expected 
musically. And oftentimes there's very little time for preparation or internalization of, of that. Um, an example that I'll give is that um, this was maybe a year and a half or two years ago. I remember because it was the end of the summer and basically with like a week's notice, two weeks notice, they were like, hey, so we're going to have three different artists sitting in with the band over the course of the next three weeks. And you're going to be playing like a combination of their music, James Taylor, St. Vincent and Joe Walsh. And so it's like we we get the music like a week before they come in. And it's not like we can necessarily be thinking about the 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 St. Vincent or the the James Taylor music because every day we're playing different St. Vincent music and we're rehearsing with her every day. And it's like in the moment, like I think, you know, you get 45 minutes to go over what we're going to play for the day. And even though it's like, you know, you only see like 20 seconds, when the cameras go off, like we're playing music, we're like playing those songs at the show live. So it's a lot of preparation with, it's a lot of music with a, not a lot of preparation time. So the ability to internalize music very quickly and then to essentially play it in a very like high pressure situation where like cameras are on and everybody's clapping and there's a lot going on. And at this point, you know, myself as well as everybody else in that band, because we've done it so much, you're, you're just very like accustomed to what it is to like do that. You know, like, all right, this is what we're playing today. This is what we're playing this week. You kind of learn how to be like, well, I know this, 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 these are songs we play all the time. I'm not going to commit a lot of brain energy to that. But this one, which is kind of tricky, that's the one I'm going to focus on today. And then as soon as it's done, you like, clear the cash and you know the cache and you're ready for tomorrow and so i think the hardest thing about it is the amount of ground we cover musically but it's also like one of the most rewarding things about it too right it's like i mean what in what other situation are you going to get to play with like thundercat paul simon and uh joe walsh in the same year you know it, it's 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 really really special so i've got another one uh this one came in from gianni said it would be interesting to hear how he got to, uh, started on sousaphone and how he works on it, uh, that double, without wrecking his chops. Uh, they said they saw you with the Hunter Tones in Tokyo um, a few months back and said he sounded incredible on both. Man, somebody asked me, like, you know, you throw up the Q&A things every once in a while on Instagram just to see what people are interested in or whatever. And somebody asked me, like, uh, how do you, like, what do you do to maintain stamina? And this, like, this question of, like, doubles... It's similar to the stamina question to me in that I find I am the strongest on both instruments when I'm on a Hunter Tones tour and we're just playing for two weeks and I'm doing the shows where it's like, all right, first four songs here and then I switch to this. And it's like, in my mind, it's like anything else. Like, I bet you in the off season, if you were to ask LeBron James to come in and shoot like 25 jump shots after he'd been like chilling for a month, he probably wouldn't make very many. But if you catch him three months in when it's like practices, workouts, game in and game out, and you're like, bro, here's 25 jump shots, he'll probably make like 20 or 21 of them. And so for me, it's like I feel like what it is to practice on a daily basis or play each instrument, maintain, you. There, part of what it is I think to do this for a living is to maintain a baseline where you know you can do 
what you need to do, whatever that is. If you're a lead player, it's like, I got to go play this. If you know, and for me, it's like a multifaceted thing. I got to be able to like perform and move and sing and solo when I need to solo and play parts when I need to play parts. And it's like to have that baseline is, you know, essential. But to be able to do that at like the highest level, or like if I have a tour coming up, to kind of then be actively just running through stuff on both instruments. But but what I find is like the older you get, it's like you know all all of the college professors tell you this. All so many people. T- the older you get, it's like you need to practice, but also it's like you want to be like spending time living your life. You know, I don't have any kids, but people have kids and it's like, you're going to be like raising your family or you're going to be wanting to like spend time with friends or you're like just wanting to have kind of like a social life that is a routine outside of the professional. So I think what happens is like when you are on, when I'm on tour, that's when I'm, when I'm playing shows with it every night where I'm doubling, that's where like the, the muscle memory and the chops really start to like kick in at a high level. And I think the answer to the maintenance is just like, man, I've just been playing both of these instruments very regularly for like 12 years at this point, which, you know, relative to people that are older than me is not that long. But like when you're doing it so much, muscle memory becomes a huge factor in it. I think that's kind of the best answer I have for that. Man, I think, uh, yeah, John, what do you what do you got uh, left for us before we wrap here? Um, once again, thank you so much for having me. Um, as mentioned, I, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a project, a live album at Bar Lunatico. I've been working on a project called Night Service. It's kind of a blend of gospel, jazz, original music, uh, kind of like church adjacent music. It's a really, I think, accurate reflection of who I am as a musician and as a human. I'm also working on a studio album. I'm really excited because, you know, I've I've been fortunate to be a part of a lot of projects, but I've really kind of um I'm feeling that it's it's time for me to kind of step out as an artist and next year a lot of this music's going to be being released into the world. So I'm really excited to continue to work on that. Most immediately, Hunter Tones is playing in New York City on December 16th. We just released a holiday EP called A Joyful Noise Part 1. Very fun to make that. Um if you're in New York, come hang out with us at The Late Show. We've got a few more weeks of taping before we break for Thanksgiving, and we tape after that before we break for December. Um, yeah, stay tuned. You know, Follow me here at John Lampley Music, johnlampley.com. You can, you know, it's where everything is updated in terms of shows and music. Um, and just stay tuned. There's going to be a lot coming. Well, with that, um, I wanted to thank everybody for listening to this month's episode of Long Tones. Uh, John Lampley, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, make sure we wish everybody out there a happy Thanksgiving in the U.S. here. And um, if you haven't yet, make sure to rate and review us on the podcast. Uh, that helps us get uh, get some traction out there, more people listen around for us. So um, we appreciate everybody being here. And don't forget to subscribe to our socials. Uh, ours at Jay Landris Brass. Steve's uh, with Virtuosity at, at Virtuosity underscore Boston. And as John mentioned before, at John Lampley Music and also at Hunter Tones Band. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, look forward to having you all on before. John, thank you very much for being a part of this. Um, really informative and, and great to hear some things from you. I look forward to seeing you again in the shop soon. All of you out there, please be safe with this holiday season and have a very happy Thanksgiving.